It's time for the Apple Seed. I'm Sam Payne, your host. It's such a pleasure each week to bring you great stories to inspire and entertain you and perhaps spark memories and thoughts that you can share as stories with the people that you love around the kitchen table or the living room. That kind of storytelling can make for memories that last a lifetime. And today we're doing something a little special on the show. I'm sitting here around the desk with Brian and Heather, our producers. Brian, tell us a little bit about what we're doing today. Yeah, so we've got something fun today. Um, For those of you who are fans of BYU TV, our our sister network here at BYU Radio, you may have seen a mini-series called The Canterville Ghost. Um, It is a four-part series that BYU TV made based on a story by the British author Oscar Wilde. Um, originally published in 1887. But what they've done with it is they have taken it and they've moved it from the 19th century to the 21st century. Um, and they have added some some scenes and, and, and some episodes that take place around the holiday season. So it's it's kind of a fun thing to, to gather around during the holiday season sure, and watch. Yeah. <laughs> and we thought BYU TV is, is bringing that up for, for the holidays. Maybe we also could just take a look at the original story sure. as written yeah. by Oscar Wilde and say, here is where this BYU TV production originally came from. And one of the things that I really love about Oscar Wilde and that he's known for is his sardonic prose and his humor. His one-liners are famous. Oh, yeah. yeah. (laughs) And one of the things that this story does at the beginning is it's a culture crash story. But it becomes this very sincere attempt at examining redemption and charity, which are things that we are thinking about in this holiday season. Yeah. We're excited to bring it to you. I'm going to be the storyteller today, reading for you Oscar Wilde's The Canterville Ghost on the Appleseed. When Mr. Hiram B. Otis, the American minister, bought Canterville Chase, everyone told him he was doing a very foolish thing, as there was no doubt at all that the place was haunted. Indeed, Lord Canterville himself, who was a man of the most punctilious honor, had felt it his duty to mention the fact to Mr. Otis when they came to discuss terms. We have not cared to live in the place ourselves, said Lord Canterville, since my grand-aunt, the Dowager Duchess of Bolton, was frightened into a fit from which she never really recovered by two skeleton hands being placed on her shoulders as she was dressing for dinner. And none of our younger servants would stay with us. And Lady Canterville often got very little sleep at night in consequence of the mysterious noises that came from the corridor and the library. My lord, answered the minister, I will take the furniture and the ghost at a valuation. I have come from a modern country, and I reckon that if there were such a thing as a ghost in Europe, we'd have it at home in a very short time in one of our public museums or on the road as a show. I fear that the ghost exists, said Lord Canterville, smiling. It has been well known for three centuries, since 1584, in fact, and always makes its appearance before the death of any member of our family. Well, so does the family doctor, for that matter, Lord Canterville. But there's no such thing, sir, as a ghost, and I guess the laws of nature are not going to be suspended for the British aristocracy. Lord Canterville, who did not quite understand Mr. Otis's last observation, answered, If you don't mind a ghost in the house, it's all right, only you must remember, I warned you. A few weeks after this, the purchase was concluded, and the minister and his family went down to Canterville Chase. Mrs. Otis, who, as Miss Lucretia R. Tappan of West 53rd Street, had been a celebrated New York belle, was now a very handsome, middle-aged woman with fine eyes and a superb profile. She had a magnificent constitution. Indeed, in many respects, she was quite English and was an excellent example of the fact that we have really everything in common with America nowadays, except, of course, language. Her eldest son, christened Washington by his parents in a moment of patriotism, which he never ceased to regret, was a fair-haired, rather good-looking young man who had qualified himself for American diplomacy by becoming an excellent dancer. Gardenias and the peerage were his only weaknesses. Otherwise, he was extremely sensible. Miss Virginia E. Otis was a girl of 15, lithe and lovely as a fawn, 
and with a fine freedom in her large blue eyes. She was a wonderful Amazon and had once raced old Lord Bilton on her pony twice round the park, winning by a length and a half, just in front of the Achilles statue, to the huge delight of the young Duke of Cheshire, who proposed for her on the spot and was sent back to Eton that very night by his guardians in floods of tears. After Virginia came the twins, who were usually called the Star and Stripes, as they were always getting caned. They were delightful boys, and with the exception of the worthy minister, the only true Republicans of the family. As Canterville Chase is seven miles from Ascot, the nearest railway station, Mr. Otis had telegraphed for a wagon to meet them, and they started on their drive in high spirits. As they entered the avenue of Canterville Chase, however, the sky became suddenly overcast with clouds. A curious stillness seemed to hold the atmosphere. A great flight of rooks passed silently over their heads, and before they reached the house, some big drops of rain had fallen. Standing on the steps to receive them was an old woman, neatly dressed in black silk with a white cap and apron. This was Mrs. Umney, the housekeeper. She made them each a low curtsy as they alighted and said in a quaint old-fashioned manner, I bid you welcome to Canterville Chase. Following her, they passed through the fine Tudor hall into the library, a long, low room paneled in black oak, at the end of which was a large stained glass window. Here they found tea laid out for them, and after taking off their wraps, they sat down and began to look around while Mrs. Utney waited on them. Suddenly, Mrs. Otis caught sight of a dull red stain on the floor just by the fireplace, and quite unconscious of what it really signified, said to Mrs. Umney, I'm afraid something has been spilled there. Yes, madam, replied the old housekeeper in a low voice, blood has been spilled on that spot. How horrid, cried Mrs. Otis. I don't care at all for blood stains in a sitting room. It must be removed at once. The old woman smiled and answered in the same low, mysterious voice, It is the blood of Lady Eleanor de Canterville, who was murdered on that very spot by her own husband, Sir Simon de Canterville, in 1575. Sir Simon survived her nine years and disappeared suddenly under very mysterious circumstances. His body has never been discovered, but his guilty spirit still haunts the chase. The bloodstain has been much admired by tourists and others and cannot be removed. That is all nonsense, cried Washington Otis. Pinkerton's champion stain remover and Paragon detergent will clean it up in no time. And before the terrified housekeeper could interfere, he had fallen upon his knees and was rapidly scouring the floor with a small stick of what looked like a black cosmetic. In a few moments, no trace of the bloodstain could be seen. I knew Pinkerton would do it, he exclaimed triumphantly as he looked round at his admiring family. But no sooner had he said these words than a terrible flash of lightning lit up the somber room. A fearful peal of thunder made them all start to their feet, and Mrs. Umney fainted. What a monstrous climate, said the American minister calmly as he lit a long cheroot. I guess the old country is so overpopulated that they have not enough decent weather for everybody. I've always been of opinion that emigration is the only thing for England. My dear Hiram, cried Mrs. Otis, what can we do with a woman who faints? Charge it to her like breakages, answered the minister. She won't faint after that. And in a few moments, Mrs. Umney certainly came too. There was no doubt, however, that she was extremely upset, and she sternly warned Mr. Otis to beware of some trouble coming into the house. I've seen things with my own eyes, sir, she said, that would make any Christian's hair stand on end. And many and many a night I have not closed my eyes in sleep for the awful things that are done here. Mr. Otis, however, and his wife warmly assured the honest soul that they were not afraid of ghosts, and after invoking the blessings of providence on her new master and mistress and making arrangements for an increase of salary, the old housekeeper tottered off to her own room. The storm raged fiercely all that night, but nothing of particular note occurred. The next morning, however, when they came down to breakfast, they found the terrible stain of blood once again on the floor. I don't think it can be the fault of the Paragon detergent, said Washington, for I have tried it with everything. It must be the ghost. He accordingly rubbed out the stain a second time. 
but the second morning it appeared again. The third morning also it was there, though the library had been locked up at night by Mr. Otis himself, and the key carried upstairs. The whole family were now quite interested. That night all doubts about the objective existence of phantasmata were removed forever. The day had been warm and sunny, and in the cool of the evening, the whole family went out to drive. They did not return home till nine o'clock, when they had a light supper. The conversation in no way turned upon ghosts, so there were not even those primary conditions of receptive expectations which so often precede the presentation of psychical phenomena. Nor was Sir Simon de Canterville alluded to in any way. At eleven o'clock, the family retired, and by half-past, all the lights were out. Sometime later, Mr. Otis was awakened by a curious noise in the corridor outside his room. It sounded like the clank of metal and seemed to be coming nearer every moment. He got up at once, struck a match, and looked at the time. It was exactly one o'clock. He was quite calm and felt his pulse, which was not at all feverish. The strange noise still continued, and with it he heard distinctly the sound of footsteps. He put on his slippers, took a small oblong file out of his dressing case, and opened the door. Right in front of him, he saw in the wan moonlight an old man of terrible aspect. His eyes were red as burning coals. Long gray hair fell over his shoulders in matted coils. His garments, which were of antique cut, were soiled and ragged. And from his wrists and ankles hung heavy manacles and rusty jives. My dear sir, said Mr. Otis, I really must insist on your oiling those chains and have brought you, for that purpose, a small bottle of the Tammany Rising Sun Lubricator. It is said to be completely efficacious upon one application, and there are several testimonials to that effect on the wrapper from some of our most eminent native divines. I shall leave it there for you by the bedroom candles and will be happy to supply you with more should you require it. With these words, the United States minister laid the bottle down on the marble table and, closing his door, retired to rest. For a moment, the Canterville ghost stood quite motionless in natural indignation. Then, dashing the bottle violently upon the polished floor, he fled down the corridor, uttering hollow groans and emitting a ghastly green light. Just, however, as he reached the top of the great oak staircase, a door was flung open. Two little white-robed figures appeared, and a large pillow whizzed past his head. There was evidently no time to be lost, so, hastily adopting the fourth dimension of space as a means of escape, he vanished through the wainscoting, and the house became quite quiet. On reaching a small secret chamber in the left wing, he leaned up against a moonbeam to recover his breath and began to realize his position. Never in a brilliant and uninterrupted career of three hundred years had he been so grossly insulted. He thought of the dowager duchess, whom he had frightened into a fit as she stood before the glass in her lace and diamonds, of the four housemaids who had gone into hysterics when he merely grinned at them through the curtains on one of the spare bedrooms, of the rector of the parish whose candle he had blown out as he was coming late one night from the library, and who had been under the care of Sir William Gull ever since, all his great achievements came back to him again, with the enthusiastic egotism of the true artist. And after all this, some wretched modern Americans were to come and offer him the Rising Sun Lubricator and throw pillows at his head. It was quite unbearable. No ghost in history had ever been treated in this manner. Accordingly, he determined to have vengeance and remained till daylight in an attitude of deep thought. The next morning, when the Otis family met at breakfast, they discussed the ghost at some length. The United States minister was naturally a little annoyed to find that his present had not been accepted. I have no wish, he said, to do the ghost any personal injury, and I must say that, considering the length of time he's been in the house, I don't think it's at all polite to throw pillows at him. A very just remark, at which I'm sorry to say the twins burst into shouts of laughter. On the other hand, he continued, if he really declines to use the Rising Sun Lubricator, we shall have to take his chains from him. It would be quite impossible to sleep with such a noise going on outside the bedrooms. 
For the rest of the week, however, they were undisturbed, the only thing that excited any attention being the continual renewal of the bloodstain on the library floor. This certainly was very strange, as the door was always locked at night by Mr. Otis, and the windows kept closely barred. The chameleon-like color also of the stain excited a good deal of comment. Some mornings it was a dull red, then it would be vermilion, then a rich purple, and once when they came down for family prayers, they found it a bright emerald green. These kaleidoscopic changes naturally amused the party very much, and bets on the subject were freely made every evening. The only person who did not enter into the joke was Virginia, who, for some unexplained reason, was always a good deal distressed at the sight of the bloodstain, and very nearly cried the morning it was emerald green. The second appearance of the ghost was on Sunday night, shortly after they had gone to bed, they were suddenly alarmed by a fearful crash in the hall. Rushing downstairs, they found that a large suit of old armor had become detached from its stand and had fallen on the stone floor, while seated in a high-backed chair was the Canterville ghost, rubbing his knees with an expression of acute agony on his face. The twins, having brought their pea shooters with them, at once discharged two pellets on him. With that accuracy of aim, which can only be attained by long and careful practice on a writing master, while the United States minister covered him with his revolver and called upon him to hold up his hands. The ghost started up with a wild shriek of rage and swept through them like a mist, extinguishing Washington Otis's candle as he passed, leaving them in total darkness. On reaching the top of the staircase, he determined to give his celebrated peal of demoniac laughter. This he had on more than one occasion found extremely useful. He accordingly laughed his most horrible laugh till the old vaulted roof rang and rang again, but hardly had the fearful echo died away when a door opened and Mrs. Otis came out in a light blue dressing gown. I am afraid you are far from well, she said and have brought you a bottle of Dr. Dobell's tincture. If it is indigestion, you will find it a most excellent remedy. The ghost glared at her in fury. However, the sound of approaching footsteps made him hesitate, so he contented himself with becoming faintly phosphorescent and vanished with a deep churchyard groan. Just as the twins had come up to him. For some days after this, he was extremely ill and hardly stirred out of his room at all, except to keep the blood stained in proper repair. However, he resolved to make a third attempt to frighten the United States minister and his family. He selected Friday, August 17th, for his appearance, and spent most of that day in looking over his wardrobe, ultimately deciding in favor of a large slouched hat with a red feather, a winding sheet frilled at the wrists and neck, and a rusty dagger. Towards evening, a violent storm of rain came on, and the wind was so high that all the windows and doors in the old house shook and rattled. In fact, it was just such weather as he loved. His plan of action was this. He was to make his way quietly to Washington Otis's room and gibber at him from the foot of the bed to the sound of low music. He bore Washington a special grudge, as it was he who was in the habit of removing the famous Canterville bloodstain by means of Pinkerton's Paragon detergent. Having reduced the reckless and foolhardy youth to abject terror, he would then proceed to the room occupied by the United States minister and his wife, and there to place a clammy hand on Mrs. Otis's forehead while he hissed into her trembling husband's ear the awful secrets of the charnel house. With regard to Virginia, he had not made up his mind. She had never insulted him in any way, and was pretty and gentle. A few hollow groans from the wardrobe, he thought, would be more than sufficient. As for the twins, he was quite determined to teach them a lesson. The first thing was to sit upon their chests so as to produce the stifling sensation of nightmare. Then, as their beds were quite close to each other, to stand between them in the form of a green, icy, cold corpse till they became paralyzed with fear. And finally, to throw off the winding sheet and crawl round the room with white bleached bones and one rolling eyeball. <laughs> this is so fun. Uh, this story by Oscar Wilde, the Canterville Ghost. We're bringing you essentially the whole thing today. And uh, there's a lot more of it coming up. I'm Sam Payne. 
It's such a pleasure for me to be with you today on The Appleseed. It's been my pleasure to read for you The Canterville Ghost, the story by Oscar Wilde. So, so far, what have we heard today? Well, we've learned about the Otis family. They're Americans who've come over to England. And we see, you know, humorously, they don't have a lot of respect for the traditions (laughs) of the place in which they've moved. And they don't seem to share the same terror. Yeah, Uh, much to the chagrin of the ghost. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the ghost is like, what is going on? Constant disappointment. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. And what we're about to hear is really an introduction to Virginia, and she's going to change the whole tenor of the story. Well, how about a little more of The Canterville Ghost by Oscar Wilde on The Appleseed? At half past ten, he heard the family going to bed. For some time, he was disturbed by wild shrieks of laughter from the twins, who, with the light-hearted gaiety of schoolboys, were evidently amusing themselves before they retired to rest. But at a quarter past eleven, all was still, and as midnight sounded, he sallied forth. The owl beat against the window panes, the raven croaked from the old yew tree, and the wind wandered moaning round the house like a lost soul. But the Otis family slept unconscious of their doom, and high above the rain and storm, he could hear the steady snoring of the minister for the United States. He stepped stealthily out of the wainscoting with an evil smile on his cruel, wrinkled mouth, and the moon hid her face in a cloud as he stole past the great aureole window where his own arms and those of his murdered wife were blazoned in azure and gold. On and on he glided like an evil shadow, the very darkness seeming to loathe him as he passed. Finally, he reached the corner of the passage that led to luckless Washington's room. For a moment, he paused there, the wind blowing his long gray locks about his head and twisting into grotesque and fantastic folds the nameless horror of the dead man's shroud. Then the clock struck the quarter, and he felt the time was come. He chuckled to himself and turned the corner, But no sooner had he done so than with a piteous wail of terror, he fell back and hid his blanched face in his long bony hands. Right in front of him was standing a horrible specter, motionless as a carven image and monstrous as a madman's dream. Its head was bald and burnished, its face round and fat and white. Hideous laughter seemed to have writhed its features into an eternal grin. From the eyes streamed rays of scarlet light. The mouth was a wide well of fire, and a hideous garment like to his own swathed with its silent snows, the titan form. And with its right hand it bore aloft a gleaming steel sword. Never having seen a ghost before, He naturally was terribly frightened, and after a second hasty glance at the awful phantom, he fled back around the corner. After a time, however, the brave old Canterville spirit determined to speak to the other ghost. After all, two ghosts were better than one, and that, by the aid of his new friend, he might safely grapple with the twins. On reaching the spot, however, a terrible sight met his gaze. Something had evidently happened to the specter, The light had faded from its hollow eyes. The sword had fallen from its hand, and it leaned against the wall in a strained and uncomfortable attitude. He rushed forward and seized it in his arms when, to his horror, the head slipped off and rolled on the floor. The body collapsed, and he found himself clasping a white bed curtain with a sweeping brush, a kitchen cleaver, and a hollow turnip lying at his feet. Well, the whole thing flashed across him. He had been tricked, foiled, and outwitted. He then retired to a comfortable lead coffin and stayed there till evening. The next day, the ghost was very weak and tired. The terrible excitement of the last month was having its effect. His nerves were completely shattered, and he started at the slightest noise. For five days, he kept in his room, and at last gave up the point of the bloodstain on the library floor. If the Otis family did not want it, they clearly did not deserve it. They were evidently people on a low material plane of existence and quite incapable of appreciating the symbolic value of sensuous phenomena. The question of phantasmic apparitions and the development of astral bodies was, of course, quite a different matter and really not under his control. 
It was his solemn duty to appear in the corridor once a week and to gibber from the large oriel window on the first and third Wednesdays in every month, and he did not see how he could honorably escape from his obligations. It is quite true that his life had been very evil, but upon the other hand, he was most conscientious in all things connected with the supernatural. For the next three Saturdays, accordingly, he traversed the corridor as usual between midnight and three o'clock, taking every possible precaution against being heard or seen. He removed his boots, trod as lightly as possible on the old worm-eaten boards, wore a large black velvet cloak, and was careful to use the rising sun lubricator for oiling his chains. It was with great difficulty that he brought himself to adopt this last mode of protection. However, one night while the family were at dinner, he slipped into Mr. Otis's bedroom and carried off the bottle. He felt a little humiliated at first, but afterwards was sensible enough to see that there was a great deal to be said for the invention, and to a certain degree, it served his purpose. Still, he was not left unmolested. Strings were continually being stretched across the corridor, over which he tripped in the dark, and on one occasion, while dressed for the part of Black Isaac or the Huntsman of Hogley Woods, he met with a severe fall through treading on a butter slide which the twins had constructed from the entrance of the tapestry chamber to the top of the oak staircase. This last insult so enraged him that he resolved to make one final effort to assert his dignity and social position. He determined to visit the insolent young Etonians the next night in his celebrated character of Reckless Rupert or the Headless Earl. He had not appeared in this disguise for more than 70 years. It was an extremely difficult costume and took him fully three hours to make his preparations. At last, everything was ready, and he was very pleased with his appearance. The big leather riding boots that went with the dress were just a little too large for him, and he could only find one of the two horse pistols, but on the whole, he was quite satisfied. And at a quarter past one, he glided out of the wainscoting and crept down the corridor. On reaching the room occupied by the twins, he found the door just ajar, Wishing to make an effective entrance, he flung it wide open when a heavy jug of water fell right down on him, wetting him to the skin and just missing his left shoulder by a couple of inches. At the same moment, he heard stifled shrieks of laughter proceeding from the four-post bed. The shock was so great that he fled back to his room as hard as he could go, and the next day he was laid up with a severe cold. The only thing that at all consoled him in the whole affair was the fact that he had not brought his head with him, for had he done so, the consequences might have been very serious. After this, he was not seen again on any nocturnal expedition. The twins lay in wait for him on several occasions and strewed the passages with nutshells every night to the great annoyance of their parents and the servants. But it was of no avail. It was quite evident that his feelings were so wounded that he would not appear. Mr. Otis consequently resumed his great work on the history of the Democratic Party, on which he had been engaged for some years. Mrs. Otis organized a wonderful clam bake which amazed the whole county. The boys took to lacrosse, poker, and other American national games, and Virginia rode about the lanes on her pony, accompanied by the young Duke of Cheshire, who had come to spend the last week of his holidays at Canterville Chase. It was generally assumed that the ghost had gone away. And, in fact, Mr. Otis wrote a letter to that effect to Lord Canterville, who, in reply, expressed his great pleasure at the news and sent his best congratulations to the minister's worthy wife. One morning, Virginia and her curly-haired cavalier went out riding on Broccoli Meadows, where she tore her habit so badly in getting through a hedge that on their return home, she went up by the back staircase so as not to be seen. As she was running past the tapestry chamber, the door of which happened to be open, she fancied she saw someone inside thinking it was her mother's maid, looked in to ask her to mend her habit. To her immense surprise, however, it was the Canterville ghost himself. He sat by the window, watching the ruined gold of the yellowing trees fly through the air and the red leaves dancing madly down the long avenue. His head leaned on his hand and his whole attitude was one of extreme depression. Indeed, so forlorn and so much out of repair did he look that Virginia was filled with pity and determined to try and comfort him. 
So light was her footfall, and so deep his melancholy, that he was not aware of her presence till she spoke to him. I am so sorry for you, she said, but my brothers are going back to Eton tomorrow, and then, if you behave yourself, no one will annoy you. It is absurd asking me to behave myself, he answered, looking round in astonishment at her. Quite absurd. I must rattle my chains and groan through keyholes and walk about at night, if that is what you mean. It is my only reason for existing. It is no reason at all for existing. And you know you've been very wicked. Mrs. Umney told us the first day we arrived here that you had killed your wife. Well... I quite admit it, said the ghost petulantly, but it was purely a family matter and concerned no one else. It is very wrong to kill anyone, said Virginia, who at times had a sweet Puritan gravity caught from some old New England ancestor. Why, I don't think it was very nice of her brothers to starve me to death, exclaimed the ghost. Starve you to death? Oh, Mr. Ghost, I, I, I mean, Sir Simon, are you hungry? I have a sandwich in my case. Would you like it? No, thank you. I never eat anything now. But it is very kind of you all the same, and you are much nicer than the rest of your horrid, rude, vulgar, dishonest family. Stop, cried Virginia, stamping her foot. It is you who are rude, horrid, and vulgar. And as for dishonesty... You know you stole the paints out of my art box to make up that ridiculous bloodstain in the library. First you took all my reds, and I couldn't do any more sunsets. Then you took the emerald green and the chrome yellow, and finally I had nothing left but indigo and white, and could only do moonlight scenes which are always depressing to look at, and not at all easy to paint. I never told on you, though I was very much annoyed, and it was most ridiculous, the whole thing. For who ever heard of emerald green blood? Well, really, said the ghost rather meekly, what was I to do? It is very difficult to get real blood nowadays, and as your brother began it all with his paragon detergent, I certainly saw no reason why I should not have your paints. As for color, that is always a matter of taste. The Cantervilles have blue blood, for instance, the very bluest in England. But I know you Americans don't care for things of this kind. You know nothing about it, and the best thing you can do is to emigrate and improve your mind. My father will be only too happy to give you a free passage. Once in New York, you are sure to be a great success. I know lots of people there who would give a hundred thousand dollars to have a family ghost. I don't think I should like America. I suppose because we have no ruins and no curiosities, said Virginia satirically. No ruins, no curiosities, answered the ghost. You have your navy and your manners. Good evening. I will go and ask Papa to get the twins an extra week's holiday. Uh, Please don't go, Miss Virginia, he cried. I am so lonely and unhappy that I don't know what to do. I want to go to sleep and I cannot. That's quite absurd. You have merely to go to bed and blow out the candle. It is very difficult sometimes to keep awake, especially at church, but there is no difficulty at all about sleeping. Why, even babies know how to do that, and they're not very clever. I have not slept for three hundred years, he said sadly, and Virginia's blue eyes opened in wonder. For three hundred years I have not slept, and I am so tired. Virginia grew quite grave, and her lips trembled. She knelt down at his side and looked up into his old withered face. Poor, poor ghost, she murmured. Have you no place where you can sleep? Far away, beyond the pine woods, he answered in a low, dreamy voice, there is a little garden where the grass grows long and deep. The great white stars are the hemlock flower. The nightingale sings all night long while the cold crystal moon looks down and the yew tree spreads out its giant arms. Virginia's eyes grew dim with tears and she hid her face in her hands. You mean the garden of death, she whispered. Yes, death, death must be so beautiful to lie on the soft brown earth with the grasses waving above one's head and listen to silence to have no yesterday and no tomorrow, to forget time, to forget life, to be at peace. You can help me. 
You can open for me the portals of death's house, for love is always with you, and love is stronger than death is. Virginia trembled. A cold shudder ran through her and was silent. She felt as if she was in a terrible dream. Then the ghost spoke again, and his voice sounded like a sighing of the wind. Have you ever read the old prophecy on the library window? Oh, often, cried the girl, looking up. I know it quite well. It is painted in curious black letters. There are only six lines. When a golden girl can win prayer from out the lips of sin. When the barren almond bears and a little child gives away its tears, then shall all the house be still and peace come to Canterville. Uh, But I don't know what they mean. They mean, he said sadly, that you must weep with me for my sins, because I have no tears, and pray with me for my soul, because I have no faith, and then the angel of death will have mercy on me. You will see fearful shapes in darkness, and wicked voices will whisper in your ear, but they will not harm you, for against the purity of a child, the powers of hell cannot prevail. Virginia made no answer, and the ghost wrung his hands in wild despair as he looked down at her bowed golden head. Suddenly, she stood up, very pale, and with a strange light in her eyes. I am not afraid, she said firmly, and I will ask the angel to have mercy on you. He rose from his seat with a faint cry of joy and bent over her hand with old-fashioned grace and kissed it. His fingers were as cold as ice, and his lips burned like fire, but Virginia did not falter as he led her across the dusky room. When they reached the wall, he stopped and muttered some words she could not understand. She saw the wall slowly fading away like a mist and a great black cavern in front of her. A bitter cold wind swept round them. Quick, quick, cried the ghost, or it will be too late. And in a moment, the wainscoting had closed behind them the tapestry chamber was empty. (laughs) The Canterville Ghost is uh, what we're bringing you today. A reading from the Oscar Wilde story published in 1887. And there's a lot more of it coming up. We're going to finish up the tale in just a moment. I'm Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure to be with you on today's episode of The Apple Seed. Today, we're reading The Canterville Ghost by Oscar Wilde, published in 1887. It's my pleasure to read you this story. I'm having a ball. (laughs) (laughs) The story kind of turned in that last little bit there, right? Yeah, and here what we see is an attempt to look at Sir Simon as this person is actually ridden with guilt, and he's wandered for centuries through his own house. And he's a guilty dude, you know, and he's a guy who's done stuff. Right. But Virginia kind of charges into sorrow with him for his sins, you know, right. and the things that have happened to him. Yeah, whereas the the boys in the family and others are just kind of <laughs> seeing like, oh, this is a chance to have some fun. You know, yeah. Virginia is saying like, what must this man be going through? And that kind of attitude is in some way redeeming. There's a lot more coming up. Here's the rest of The Canterville Ghost by Oscar Wilde on The Appleseed. About 10 minutes later, the bell rang for tea, and as Virginia did not come down, Mrs. Otis sent up one of the footmen to tell her. After a little time, he returned and said that he could not find Miss Virginia anywhere. As she was in the habit of going out to the garden every evening to get flowers for the dinner table, Mrs. Otis was not at all alarmed at first, but when six o'clock struck and Virginia did not appear, she became really agitated and sent the boys out to look for her while she and Mr. Otis searched every room in the house. At half past six, the boys came back and said that they could not find her anywhere. They were all now in the greatest state of excitement and did not know what to do when Mr. Otis suddenly remembered that some few days before he had given a band of gypsies permission to camp in the park. He accordingly at once set off for Blackfell Hollow, where he knew they were, accompanied by his eldest son and two of the farm servants. The Duke of Cheshire, who was perfectly frantic with anxiety, begged hard to be allowed to go too, but Mr. Otis would not allow him, as he was afraid there might be a scuffle. 
On arriving at the spot, however, he found that the gypsies had gone. Having sent off Washington and the two men to scour the district, he ran home and dispatched telegrams across the county, telling them to look out for a young girl who had been kidnapped by tramps or gypsies. He then ordered his horse to be brought round, and after insisting on his wife and the three boys sitting down to dinner, rode off down the Ascot Road with a groom. He had hardly gone a couple of miles when he heard somebody galloping after him and, looking round, saw the Duke coming up on his pony with his face very flushed and no hat. "'I'm awfully sorry, Mr. Otis,' gasped the boy, "'but I can't eat dinner as long as Virginia is lost. "'Please don't be angry with me. "'If you had let us be engaged last year, "'there would never have been all this trouble. "'You won't send me back, will you? "'I can't go. I won't go.' The minister could not help smiling at the handsome young scapegrace and was a good deal touched at his devotion to Virginia. So, leaning from his horse, he patted him kindly on the shoulders and said, Well, Cecil, if you won't go back, I suppose you must come with me, but I must get you a hat at Ascot. Oh, bother my hat, I want Virginia, cried the duke, laughing, and they galloped on to the railway station. There, Mr. Otis inquired of the station master if anyone answering to the description of Virginia had been seen on the platform. The station master wired up and down the line and assured him that a strict watch would be kept for her. And after having bought a hat for the Duke from a linen draper who was just putting up his shutters, Mr. Otis rode off to Bexley, a village about four miles away, which he was told was a well-known haunt of the gypsies, as there was a large common next to it. Here they roused up the rural policeman, but could get no information from him, and after riding all over the common, they turned their horses' heads homewards and reached the chase about 11 o'clock, dead tired and almost heartbroken. They found Washington and the twins waiting for them at the gatehouse with lanterns as the avenue was very dark. Not the slightest trace of Virginia had been discovered. The gypsies had been caught on Brockley Meadows, but she was not with them. The gypsies had been quite distressed at hearing of Virginia's disappearance, and four of their number had stayed behind to help search. The carp pond had been dragged, and the whole chase thoroughly gone over, but without any result. It was evident that, for that night at any rate, Virginia was lost to them, and it was in a state of deepest depression that Mr. Otis and the boys walked up to the house. In the hall, they found a group of frightened servants, and lying on a sofa in the library, was poor Mrs. Otis, almost out of her mind, with terror and anxiety, and having her forehead bathed with eau de cologne by the old housekeeper. Mr. Otis at once insisted on her having something to eat, and ordered up supper for the whole party. It was a melancholy meal, as hardly anyone spoke, and even the twins were awestruck and subdued, as they were very fond of their sister. When they had finished, Mr. Otis, in spite of the entreaties of the Duke, ordered them all to bed, saying that nothing more could be done that night, and that he would telegraph in the morning to Scotland Yard for some detectives to be sent down immediately. Just as they left of the dining room, midnight began to boom from the clock tower, and when the last stroke sounded, they heard a crash and a sudden shrill cry. A dreadful peal of thunder shook the house. A strain of unearthly music floated through the air. A panel at the top of the staircase flew back with a loud noise, and on the landing, looking very pale and white, with a little box in her hand, stepped Virginia. They all rushed up to her. Mrs. Otis clasped her passionately in her arms. The Duke smothered her with violent kisses, and the twins executed a wild war dance round the group. Good heavens, child, where have you been? said Mr. Otis, rather angrily thinking that she had been playing some foolish trick on them. Cecil and I have been riding all over the country looking for you, and your mother has been frightened to death. You must never play these practical jokes any more. "'Except on the ghost! Except on the ghost!' shrieked the twins as they capered about. "'My own darling, thank God you are found. You must never leave my side again,' murmured Mrs. Otis as she kissed the trembling child and smoothed the tangled gold of her hair. "'Papa,' said Virginia quietly, "'I have been with the ghost. "'He is dead, and you must come and see him. "'He had been very wicked, but he was really sorry for all that he had done.' and he gave me this box of beautiful jewels before he died. The whole family gazed at her in mute astonishment, but she was quite grave and serious, and turning round, she led them through the opening in the wainscoting down a narrow secret corridor, Washington following with a lighted candle which he had caught up from the table. 
Finally, they came to a great oak door, studded with rusty nails. When Virginia touched it, it swung back on its heavy hinges, and they found themselves in a little low room with a vaulted ceiling and one tiny grated window. Embedded in the wall was a huge iron ring, and chained to it was a gaunt skeleton that was stretched out at full length on the stone floor seemed to be trying to grasp with its long, fleshless fingers an old wooden platter and pewter pitcher that were placed just out of its reach. The jug had evidently been once filled with water, though empty now. Dust covered the platter. Virginia knelt beside the skeleton and, folding her hands together, began to pray silently, while the rest of the party looked on in wonder at the terrible tragedy whose secret was now disclosed to them. "'Hello!' suddenly exclaimed one of the twins, who had been looking out of the window to try and discover in what wing of the house the room was situated. "'Hello! The the old withered almond tree has blossomed. I can see the flowers quite plainly in the moonlight.' "'God has forgiven him,' said Virginia gravely, as she rose to her feet, and a beautiful light seemed to illuminate her face. "'What an angel you are!' cried the young duke, and he kissed her. Four days after these curious incidents, a funeral started from Canterville Chase at about 11 o'clock at night. The hearse was drawn by eight black horses, and the leaden coffin was covered by a rich purple pall, on which was embroidered in gold the Canterville coat of arms. The servants walked with lighted torches, and the whole procession was wonderfully impressive. Lord Canterville was the chief mourner, having come up specially from Wales to attend the funeral and sat in the first carriage along with little Virginia. Then came the United States minister and his wife, then Washington and the three boys, and in the last carriage was Mrs. Umney. It was generally felt that, as she had been frightened by the ghost for more than 50 years of her life, she had a right to see the last of him. A deep grave had been dug in the corner of the churchyard, just under the old yew tree. When the ceremony was over, The servants extinguished their torches, and as the coffin was being lowered into the grave, Virginia stepped forward and laid on it a large cross made of white and pink almond blossoms. As she did so, the moon came out from behind a cloud and flooded with its silent silver the little churchyard, and from a distant copse a nightingale began to sing. She thought of the ghost's description of the garden of death. Her eyes became dim with tears. She was silent during the drive home. The next morning, before Lord Canterville went up to town, Mr. Otis had an interview with him on the subject of the jewels the ghost had given to Virginia. They were perfectly magnificent, especially a ruby necklace with old Venetian setting, which was really a superb specimen of 16th century work, and their value was so great that Mr. Otis felt considerable scruples about allowing his daughter to accept them. It is quite clear to me, he said, that these jewels are or should be heirlooms in your family. I must beg you to take them to London with you and to regard them simply as a portion of your property, which has been restored to you under certain strange conditions. These gems are of great monetary worth, and if offered for sale would fetch a tall price. Under these circumstances, Lord Canterville, you must recognize how impossible it would be for me to allow them to remain in the possession of any member of my family. Virginia is very anxious that you should allow her to retain the box as a memento of your unfortunate but misguided ancestor. As it is extremely old and consequently a good deal out of repair, you may think fit to comply with her request. Lord Canterville listened very gravely to the worthy minister's speech, pulling his gray mustache now and then to hide an involuntary smile. And when Mr. Otis had ended, he shook him cordially by the hand and said, My dear sir, your daughter rendered my unlucky ancestor, Sir Simon, a very important service, and I and my family are much indebted to her for her marvelous courage and pluck. The jewels are clearly hers, and gad, I believe that if I were heartless enough to take them from her, the wicked old fellow would be out of his grave in a fortnight, leading me the devil of a life. Besides, you forget, Mr. Otis, that you took the furniture and the ghost at a valuation, and anything that belonged to the ghost passed at once into your possession, as whatever activity Sir Simon may have shown in the corridor at night, in point of law, he was really dead, and you acquired his property by purchase. 
Mr. Otis was distressed at Lord Canterville's refusal, begged him to reconsider his decision, but the good-natured peer was quite firm, and finally induced the minister to allow his daughter to retain the present the ghost had given her, and when in the spring of 1890 the young Duchess of Cheshire was presented at the Queen's first drawing room on the occasion of her marriage, her jewels were the universal theme of admiration. For Virginia was married to her boy lover as soon as he came of age. They were both so charming and they loved each other so much that everyone was delighted at the match except, strange to say, Mr. Otis himself. Mr. Otis was extremely fond of the young Duke personally, but theoretically he objected to titles. His objections, however, were completely overruled. And I believe that when he walked up the aisle of St. George's, Hanover Square, with his daughter leaning on his arm, there was not a prouder man in the whole length and breadth of England. The story of the Canterville Ghost, written by Oscar Wilde. I, I, I wound up really loving this story. Yeah. And it starts off as something that just feels kind of slight but fun, and it ends up in this really kind of beautiful place, you know. Let's acknowledge... Sir Simon de Canterville did something really bad, yes, you know? Yeah, But it's like, think of all the time that's gone by and think think about how much sorrow and how much regret and, and his efforts to make things right over the years. Yeah. And I, th- I think about things... Are there things in my life that I'm still holding on to? Yeah. And do do I need to? If if I've made restitution, if I, if I have uh, tried to fix things and, and restore things... At what point can I just say, like, I'm just going to let this go, and I'm yeah. just and and I'm allowed to progress with my life without this burdening me down? Yeah, and right. Virginia goes into you know the 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 heroic act is simply to sorrow with somebody who is sorrowing, to mourn with someone who's mourning, to yeah. offer comfort to someone who stands in need of of comfort, and that I thought that was really lovely. Yeah. Well, it's been a real pleasure for us to to bring you this story on The Appleseed today, where great stories can change your family's world. We're pleased and proud to be among the many shows in the BYU family of programs. And you can find this episode or any episode from our archive at byuradio.org slash Appleseed or on the BYU Radio app. Or, of course, Google The Appleseed Podcast and subscribe. We appreciate your reviews. So if you listen on a podcast platform, leave us a little feedback and rate us. I'm Sam Payne. Thanks to... Brian and Heather for being with me, and I can't wait to be with you again on The Appleseed. Mm-hmm.